If you take out your Bibles, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, specifically verse 28, but we're going to read the whole section of 25 through 5-2. Sometimes chapters are unfortunate because they get in the way of the way the letter was originally written. So we're going to look all the way from 25 to 5-2, which is actually the whole section here that Paul is discussing. Let's go before the Lord and ask Him to illumine this text to us. great preacher, great apostle, Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you and ask that you would speak to us from your word this day. This is a sacred word. This is a true word. This is a word that cuts through flesh and bone and marrow to the very hearts and souls of men and women, boys and girls. Would you do the work of a surgeon this day? Would you cut our hearts, Lord, even this day, that we might be healed? Would you drive and press the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ more firmly and deeply into our systems? That we might love holiness more and hate sin more. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand with me as we read God's holy word. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Dignity. That's what we're looking at today. Dignity. Here's a definition of dignity. I looked up on the web. I googled it and it says this. Dignity is nobility or elevation of character, worthiness. Adam and Eve were created as dignified beings. They had an elevated character. They were worthy creatures because they served the worthy one, and they were made in His image. And it's important for us to see and to think about the fact 
that dignity really is something that is not just a social justice issue. It's not just something that we should just hand over to the liberals and say only people out in the culture really talk about the dignity of a human being. But really, that's biblical language. That's our stuff. We, as God's people, should care about the dignity of other people. In that spiritual, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, there's that verse which says, we will guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. And the pride it's speaking of there is not a sinful, arrogant pride. It is rather the sense of worthiness, of worth, that you actually are significant and matter. And one of the things we need to understand is that Paul is saying in this text is, look, human beings and their actions matter. It matters what you think and do. That's why you're supposed to put away falsehood, how you think and speak about the truth. That's why we're not supposed to be angry for long, because it usually leads to us doing wrong and sinful things. And so here Paul comes back and says, look, the thief should steal no longer. Why? Because that thief has been made in the image of God. And we weren't made for stealing. We were made for sharing and caring. We were made for giving. We were made for better things. And so it ought not be so among us that we would foster and encourage that which defames and dishonors the image and character of God. That's not what we were made for. That's not how it's supposed to be. In Genesis 2.15, and if you want to, you can turn back there with me. I want us to look here at this text. Just a moment. We're told here in Genesis chapter 2 that God basically creates the man. He breathes into him his spirit. Man becomes a living being, an animated body and soul. God prepares a beautiful garden, a temple, if you will. And for those of you that are good Bible readers and scholars, you'll note that much of what's described that's in Eden is the very things that get described in the tabernacle and the priestly garments. And also, if you go all the way to Revelation, you'll find a lot of that stuff being used there as well to be descriptive of God's holiness and glory. But here in verse 15, after God has done that, it says this. He's made the man and he's made this beautiful place. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Hebrew words are abad and shamar. And the idea was that Adam was supposed to be a keeper and cultivator of this temple 
garden and was supposed to spread it, as he was fruitful and multiplied, his offspring would spread out and literally that garden glory would spread and cover the whole earth. That was Adam's calling. Adam failed. And part of how Adam failed was that he became a thief. He stole what was not rightfully his. Eve grabbed fruit that was not hers. And the man took it from her, that which was not theirs. They stole. And in the stealing, they stole God's glory. And in the stealing, they gave the devil a foothold. Which is exactly what we were told in the verse before this. Do not give the devil a place. Don't give him a foothold. Don't give him an opportunity. And our thievery did that very thing. We stole or sought to steal the glory of God. And we let Satan get his way and deface us and deform us and disfigure us from what God had made us to be. Holy and happy with God. That's what we were made to be. And Adam and Eve fell deeply. These two words are really important because everywhere else in the Old Testament that Abad and Shamar are put together, it's always language used of the priest in their activities of worship. Now think about that. God put Adam in the garden to Abad and Shamar. And we know that Aaron and all his offspring Abad and Shemard in the temple. So what we're seeing is that Adam was made to be a priest of the Most High God. And we know that when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, He said, you are a kingdom of priests. And Peter says what about us in the New Testament? You are a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. Our labor is always supposed to be priestly. It's holy stuff. Our activities are supposed to be done worshipfully. Now think about how that changes how most of us think about our work. I mean, even the best of us who say, you know, we want to work hard. We want to be honoring to the Lord. We want to do our, our, our daily labors. But how often do we really think about this functioning as really a testimony of our priesthood? Our declaration of being glory promoters rather than glory stealers. That's what Adam was made for. That's what we were made for. And what happened was not that work was created because man sinned, but rather Work was made hard because the ground was cursed because of us. Work has always been something worthy and good and noble and character building. And all through the scriptures, especially in Proverbs, laziness and idleness are always seen as wrong and bad things. We were made to work. 
to work and keep, steward well what God has given us. So what I want us to do is begin to look at this passage then in light of the fact of what God is doing. Adam fell from what he was supposed to be, his dignity, his nobility. And I want us to see now how Paul is saying, do you see what happens when you are engrafted into Christ? Here's what happens. The thief should steal no longer. How is that possible? Well, it's only possible in God. But the thief now should steal no longer. Now, just to give you some cultural context here, many of the people that Paul would have been writing to in this general area would have often been seasonal slash migrant workers. So what happens when the fruit season or the wheat season or whatever wasn't good or they didn't have a fruit or a crop being harvested at that time, these people didn't have a lot of resources. So what did they resort to? Stealing. Thievery. And so Paul is writing very practically to them, that was your old way of life. But you've entered a new way of life, and a new way of life which says, you need to trust that God is able to provide you what is necessary for life? We, in fact, even pray that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Give us this day our daily bread. Not our weekly bread, not our monthly bread, not our yearly bread. Give us our daily bread. Now, most of us in this room would be very unsatisfied if all we were getting was our daily bread. Which ought to tell us how really wealthy and rich we really are beyond reason because we have vastly more than our daily bread we have vastly more than our daily robe our daily chariot we have been blessed tremendously so what we need to see then is is that god is saying through the apostle paul the thief Need steal no longer because I take care of my own and he needs to trust me. Now, what I'm not telling you is, is that no Christian will ever be poor. What I'm not telling you is, is that if you find a poor Christian, you must find a Christian who's just disobedient. And no, sometimes in the course in life of the church's history, Christians have found themselves deeply impoverished precisely because they were being faithful. Ministers put out of their pulpits. Families driven off their homesteads. This has been the case both now and in the past. But it's also the case that God has provided for His church throughout the ages as well. And he has allowed resources to be available. We know that Paul went throughout the known world asking for resources to be sent back to the church in Jerusalem when they were experiencing a famine. The rest of of Europe was not experiencing that famine. It was a famine in the Middle East. And so Paul asked for the resources of the churches in other wealthier parts of the known world to support their brothers and sisters in Christ who were doing without, who had need at that moment. So we see that there is this idea of let the thief steal no longer. 
It is an exhortation in some ways to walk in dignity in which you were created. Why? Because we were made to work. Not to steal. So really when Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, what he's really saying is return to dignity. Return to a place of honor. Return to a place of acting worthy. Don't steal. That's an undignified, dishonoring, defaming way to operate. Because your heavenly father has all you need. And when you steal, you say, no, he doesn't. That he doesn't know what he's doing. That he doesn't know my needs when I need him. I don't really believe that he's a a present help in time of need. And we know throughout the scripture's history that when people have had that attitude, we've gotten Ishmael's and other such things. Because we weren't willing to wait and trust that God would provide at the right time, in the right way, in the right amount. So Paul is calling out and saying, Let the thief steal no longer. What ultimately lays at the heart of all sin, as I've said before, is the stealing of God's glory. And that's exactly what Satan went after when he wanted Adam and Eve to fall from grace. He went after God's glory. You won't make me equal with you, then I'll steal it from you. And that's what he did to humanity. So, Christ, in Christ, we are called away. And I want to give you a few things when we say, let the thief steal no longer. Here's a few things you might think about that we do and that we're called away from. Plagiarism. The stealing of other people's ideas. We're called away from that. Students. We're called away from stealing other people's ideas. That's why we use quotes and give credit in papers we write. It's a practical thing we're called to do. We're not to steal other people's ideas. We're to basically give credit where credit is due. We are not to... Steal people's stuff. Why? Because we're called to steward the things that God has given us. And what happens when you take, if you take your neighbor's bike, you've defrauded him of the opportunity to steward that bike well. He doesn't have any more. When you take your neighbor's paper clips, you know, it may seem like a small thing. You know, well, my boss has got tons of paper clips. I'm just borrowing a few. But you're not allowing that company to steward its resources well. They're responsible. It seems like small little things, but I want us to understand, we were made as people who speak truth, who speak with integrity, who speak honestly. Hey, I'm going to take some paper clips home. Cool, Bob. Have a nice evening. But it is something that should be known in our character because of who we are. We are not to slander and gossip. You know why? Because it steals people's character. It takes away their character. We rob them of that which Christ is restoring in them. Their character. We're not to steal time from our employer. And our employers, for those of you here, are not to steal time from your employees. In other words, you're not to defraud them of work given. The worker is worthy of his wages. What I'm trying to get you to see is the prevailing wisdom of why we shouldn't do these things is because what's really at stake is the character and glory of God of which we 
are the representatives of. That's why the thief should steal no longer. And we are called and restored to something. We're not just called away from something. What we see Paul saying is, no, you're called to something. And what is that? Well, he tells us, but rather let him labor. We're to work with our hands. In other words, in Christ, our dignity is restored. We have been called to work hard. In fact, this text actually says, let them work hard. The doing honest work in that next thing means to work hard. To work up a sweat. Now, some of us work in jobs that we might not work up a sweat every day. I usually on Sunday mornings try to work up a a, a lather. But the real idea here is that whether you're using your brain to the maximum or you're using your brawn to the maximum, in either way, it is noble and dignified and of good character to work hard. We're called to work hard. And as we work hard, guess what that does to us? When we find ourselves at a place where we say, I've given all I can and I don't have anything left to give, we're now at a place where we really see how wonderful it is that we have a Savior whose strength is shown perfect in our weakness. So we don't run the race. We run hard. We work hard. And we play hard. We go after it hard because we have the love of Christ and the goodness of God at work in us. Remember what we've already been told back in chapter 2. We were created as God's workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's not as if we don't have the promise of God that as we labor to do that which is good, that somehow we labor alone. Rather, in Christ, we labor in the plans and the outworkings of a gracious and good and merciful God who knows our weaknesses, knows our struggles, and enables us, despite sometimes ourselves, to press forward in the good that He has planned for us to do. We walk with confidence. We walk with grace and mercy being poured out upon us. And I want to just say this to you, too. Um, and I want to say this to, to children, too, because oftentimes children, especially when they, when they get to the age where my kids are starting to get, you know, when, you're, when your children are little, they love helping mommy and daddy. That's a great thing. You know, they love to walk behind you like they're mowing the grass or mopping the floor or dusting. And, you know, they're, they're great workers. But as children tend to get older, they tend to find that there are other things that, at least in their opinion, are more fun to do than to do that stuff that mommy and daddy are doing. In fact, they're perfectly happy to have mom and dad do it the rest of their lives. In fact, we found in our society that people tend to go to college and move back home because they really love the fact that mom and dad pretty much do everything. It sounds like a great idea. Let's let them keep doing it. I think there's a movie that's actually called Failure to Launch. It's actually the whole premise is based on getting the kid out of the house. Time for you to get out there and do some work on your own. The idea that I want you to hear is this. How many of you have ever dug a garden, planted a bunch of flowers, built a shed, a house? I mean, some of you have done some much more profound things. Some of you have 
really worked on big things. I know that Steve restored a Volkswagen bug almost from scratch. I can assure you that every time Steve would tell me about that Volkswagen, or as I watched him tell other people about that Volkswagen, you could just see this welling up of worthiness and dignity. in him. I restored a Volkswagen from scratch. And see, what our children need to see too is, my children, when we go out and plant all the plants, we just, we've been doing that recently, planting flowers for spring and things like that. When you get done at the end of the day, your arms and back are sore, at least mine are, and, and, and all these things. But you sit down and you go, man, look at that. A job well done, well enjoyed. See, there's a dignity to work, which we see restored in us as we do it and go after it with abandon. Now, I'm not much of a number cruncher, but I know at the end of tax season, I've talked to my buddy Marty, and he's gone, man, we got the books in order. It's all streamlined. Numbers are across. I mean, he kind of gets excited about it. I mean, he really gets excited, almost as excited as he does about the possibility of getting a new Harley. I mean, it's, those things are kind of equal. <laughs> The fruit of his keeping his numbers together. But I want you to see that all of us sense this. And what I want you to understand is that as Christians, we ought to be people who bask in the reality that when we work hard, God is good and gracious to us in blessing us. But also, we have the double benefit of being honoring and glorifying and worshipful of Him in that activity. Do you see how amazing that is? That people who were once thieves and criminals and stealers of everything good have been restored and redeemed and brought back to people who are able to redeem and restore and renew the world around them. Their job. Their class. I try and encourage my children. I don't care what other children or other parents are saying about homework being too much or too little or whatever. You do your best. You do what God has called you to. Let His favor shine upon you. Don't worry about what other people are or are not upset about. Work hard. And trust the Lord. See His favor. The reason for doing this is not merely about us feeling good about ourselves or feeling a sense of nobility, but look what Paul says right there in verse 28. He says, So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Why do we do this? This is right at the heart of the Eighth Commandment. All the law hangs on two things. Love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. So you see, the thief should steal no longer because the thief is called to love God with everything he's got and do good to his neighbor. And so what Christ has come and done is restored us from being people who don't love God at all and are haters of God and who do evil continually towards others lovers of selves and haters of other people into people who are able to love God and do what pleases Him. 
That is the care and the kindness towards other images of God. Other people. And so what we see then is this idea. We must be zealous to display the glory of God and to act redemptively and restoratively towards others, even as God has done this to us. It's that great privilege. We've been redeemed and restored so that we can be redeemers and restorers. Not in the grand sense of what Christ is, but because we have the opportunity to share with other people the goodness of God. I mean, that's the beauty of the Deacons Fund, isn't it? Out of our plenty, we continue to give to those men and they're able to take those resources and help people in our church and help other brothers and sisters in this city, maybe help a person who is down and out and needs a helping hand and is able to present the gospel and hopefully able to help them maybe find meaningful work. You see, we actually get to play that small part in the same way that we get to play little creators. We're not the big creator. We do get to create We get to play little redeemers and little restorers because of the reality of the great redeemer and the great restorer has done this in us and for us. Do you see the dignity that Christ has brought us to? This is also why we're to be about evangelism. Evangelism is rooted right at the heart of this. The reason why you want other people to come to Christ is so that they would be restored to being glory promoters of God rather than glory thieves, stealers of God's goodness, perverters of God's majesty. So at the heart of this, really, evangelism is not so much about just that person. It's about God. That person needs to stop being a thief and be restored and redeemed and renewed to what they ought to be, worshipers of the living God. Thus, we are compelled out to affect others in various ways. The church should care for its own. I think one of the things we should really be mindful of is that it is not sufficient for us to say, well, you know, I hear that so-and-so and so-and-so has been having some rough times. We need to be able to and willing to help folks out. It's also this fact, and let me just say this to you, men and women. One of the hardest things is not... For us to be giving people oftentimes, one of the hardest things for us is to be receiving people. If you want to know where pride is in the church, try and give somebody a helping hand when they need it and see if they receive it. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to help people. You don't, no, we don't need to do that. No, you don't need to let, no, don't let the deacons know about it. That's all right. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of it. That's not faith. That's foolishness. The reason why we have one another is so we can care for one another. You're depriving people of an opportunity to serve you and to serve the Lord when you have real needs and you don't let people help you. And that's not just physical needs. That's emotional needs. That's spiritual needs. We need one another. And our pride often is most seen in our rejection of help which people seek to give us and provide to us as an example of God's mercy. We should strive to work in our jobs and in our culture to seek people's well-being and not just a welfare check. 
You know why I don't like the welfare system? It's not because I don't think we ought to give people a helping hand. It's that the welfare system in America is bankrupt precisely because we give people something for nothing. And it's not the nothing part that bothers me that they haven't done anything as far as what they owe me. It's the fact that we keep them in an undignified place. We don't bring them up and say, work is a dignified place. And even if you're not converted, you can still still show some glimmers of God's greatness in the fact that you do a hard day's work and get a hard day's wages. And I think sometimes we forget that, even ourselves, as we look to do outreach to people. Part of our outreach shouldn't just be writing checks. We ought to have some concern over, does this really help these people move to a place of working with us, not just being dependent on us? And that's part of being about dignity. We want to restore people's dignity the image that God made them to be. I want to read Acts 4 because this is a great illustration. It's not the great illustration. It is a illustration. So let's be very careful as I read this to you. I'm not suggesting that we should all hold everything in common and that you should all start writing your full paychecks and sell all your property and give it to me and I'll graciously, as a, as a, as a sweet king, hand it back out to you as you have need. Not suggesting that at all. But I do want you to listen to what happens in Acts. Listen. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now it's not saying that they necessarily had to have given up what they owned. It just says that their attitude was all of this belongs to God and is a resource to the people of God. Everything that God's given me, I'm a steward of and I have responsibility for, but it is a resource to be used for the good of God's people. It says, but they had everything in common, verse 33, and with the great power of the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. When the children of Israel were asked to give so that the temple of God could be built, we're told in the scriptures that the, the Levites and the priests had to say, quit giving your stuff. We got more than we know what to do with. That's why we work, is so that we can be incredibly generous to God's people and God's work. And you see how that restores dignity to God's people. You don't read, need to read a book about purpose. You need to see right here that this is your purpose. It is to bring glory to God and good to others. And I want you to see that this is what King Jesus is doing in uniting us to Him. He is saying, you don't have to be a thief. You now can be a benefactor. 
In conclusion, then, what I want you to see is this reality. That we have been taken away from thievery and brought into being glory givers. John Stott has said it right. None but Christ can transform a burglar into a benefactor. None but Christ. And I pray that you would go home today restored and encouraged in what Christ is doing for you and in you and through you. And if today you don't know Jesus and you want to know Him, would you please come and see me after the service that we might talk and you might see the restoring work of Christ at work in you. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.